Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we have real talk about fertility and capture the amazing stories and incredible lengths people go to to create their families. Today's episode is presented by This Is What Infertility Looks Like, a Pregnantish campaign launching in honor of National Infertility Awareness Week with support from First Response Pregnancy. One thing is clear, we need to be more inclusive when we talk about infertility. Visit pregnantish.com slash infertility looks like for more. I work with a lot of couples on the other side of IVF where they have, and tell me if you, you find this might just be specific to my practice, but sex has been off the table for so long because of IVF that they're really trying to find their way back to sex, but they really let it go, you know, and there have been some really interesting studies that have shown that couples who have sex once a week. It doesn't have to be with an effort to be procreative. It can just be about being relational or fun or letting, trying to escape a little bit and let go from some stress. But the couples who have sex once a week have higher levels of relationship satisfaction than couples who don't. Dr. Ian Kerner's new book, So Tell Me About the Last Time You Had Sex, is a question he often asks people in a sex therapy practice. So much can be learned about our relationship dynamics to our partners and to ourselves and where we are in life through this seemingly simple question. We know that adding a layer of stress, trauma, grief, infertility can make sex that much trickier. So I wanted to invite Dr. Kerner on the show today since I knew he'd be the perfect guest to address how to keep sex sexy and how to stay intimate during a challenge like infertility. He is a licensed psychotherapist, a best-selling author, and nationally recognized sexuality counselor who specializes in sex therapy, couples therapy, and working with individuals on a range of relational issues that often lead to distress. And he and I have been on TV together through the years sharing relationship advice, and I always learn so much from him. He's been doing this for a long time and addresses not just heterosexual couples, but the LGBTQ community as well, who are definitely in our audience at Pregnantish. Whether or not you've experienced infertility or pregnancy losses, you've likely been in a situation in which stress and grief have had an effect on your sex life or where you found it tough to get down when baby is on the brain. So this episode is helpful for anyone who wants to keep intimacy alive during these chapters. Welcome to the show, and thanks so much for speaking with us at Pregnantish. Hi, Andrea. It's my pleasure. I'm really happy to be here and to be talking with you again. Yeah, it's been a long time. I think the last time we saw each other was at one of our book launches, and now I'm so excited that you have a new book, and uh, congratulations. And I'd, I'd love to hear about what inspired this book. I've been doing sex therapy for, I guess, over 20 years, you know, really just focusing on people's sex lives. And I really feel like by the time people are getting to my office, like it's 10 years too late sometimes, or five years too late, or a year too late, meaning that they're really self-silencing, they're bottling up, they're ruminating, and they're really coming to see me hoping for a change, you know, and to make a change and to find some kind of solution. So over the years, I've kind of had to develop a kind of real-time sex in action methodology to help people feel hopeful and optimistic about their sex lives because 
sexuality is such a central part of human expression and part of a relationship. So that question, so tell me about the last time you had sex, which is the title of the book, is a question I will always ask patients, especially couples, in the first session, because to me, every sexual event tells a story. There's a beginning, a middle, and end. There's a narrative that's a sequence of interactions. Those interactions are physical, they're psychological, they're emotional. They're two people's kind of experiences coming together. And most couples I have found have what I call a sort of the sex script, the way in which a sexual event kind of unfolds. And sometimes that sex script really works Sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it's usually reinforcing uh, a problem or an issue. And so I like to help couples in real time rewrite their sex scripts. I'll sort of give them homework every session to keep them moving through a change in their sex script, a new sex script, adapting to some sort of life issue or life cycle change that maybe requires a sex script. So it's just sort of ends up being an interesting way of helping people change their sex lives that's really tangible. And what's fascinating to me is it may sound like, oh, the sex script is sort of just what we do. It's just our behaviors. But honestly, it's a lot more than that. You know, when when couples are having issues sexually somewhere in the sex script, it could link to it could link to trauma. It could link to a, a personality difference. It could link to something historical, some kind of relational issue, some kind of stressor that's in the air. So the sex script, it's sort of like the tip of the iceberg, but it's the piece of the iceberg that we can kind of grab and hold on to and work with. I love that. I think it it's, it's caused me to just think deeply about what is our sex script. And I'm sure many listeners are thinking the same because we don't always consciously think of these things. A lot of times we press, we know in relationships, the snooze alarm, keep doing the same things, but maybe frustrated or not fulfilled. And I love that you uh, allow people to capture this and, and get empowered that they have the ability to change the script and grow. And so that's, that's awesome. I think it this, you know, is going to resonate with so many people too, because the sex script often changes the way we relate and interact often changes when we're trying to make a baby, whether or not we're struggling as many of our listeners are, or just trying, you know, to conceive. It's hard to keep sex sexy. There's, you know, I always say there's a difference between lovemaking and baby making. So do you have any advice for couples trying to conceive who, whether or not they have infertility, actually just trying to conceive uh, and all the pressure that goes into trying to make a baby? Do you have any advice there for them? Yeah. You know, it's interesting when I'm talking to my patients, sometimes we'll sort of, I'll ask them, well, how many different types of sex do you think there are? And it's an interesting question. And I'll say, well, what do you think about this? That maybe there's three types of sex. And I'll say there's certainly procreative sex, you know, which is the sex we engage in when there's, you know, often the goal or the hope of procreation. And, you know, for a long time in our sort of modern Western civilization, you know, believe it or not, that was sort of the predominant narrative around what sex 
should be. But as we've kind of moved along, I feel like we also have different models of sexuality. We have the relational model, you know, where we really look to sex as a way of connecting and sharing and touching and getting closer to someone maybe in ways that just you would never be able to do outside of that sort of mutual connecting and kind of letting go together. So there's procreative sex, there's relational sex. And then I think there's also recreational sex, which is kind of that sex sometimes when we think about peak sexual experiences or we think about something that might be really fun or adventurous or experiential. I'll throw this out as a question. To what degree do we lose sense of the recreational? You know what I mean? Yes. And and it's a pressure cooker because when it's procreational, I, li- I like the idea of combining these different facets because we are multi-layered people and it, we can tap into all of these things at once. That's a great idea. I think the pressure to perform, it can't do a body good, right? To just have it in your head that I must finish, this must work, I have to get the school this month or else. Like that has to be a bit of a sex buzz killer, right? Absolutely. You know, in my practice for sex therapy, when there are these sorts of pressures around conceiving, you know, very often a male partner has a lot of problems with that, uh, you know, especially in a heterosexual relationship because suddenly there's a lot of pressure connected to the sex. And so the most common complaint that I often see with men, and we can talk about the, the pressure and the stressors all around. But I work with a lot of men who very much want to conceive, like they are in love with their partners, they're ready for this stage in the life cycle. But just the idea of that goal creates an anxiety that often leads to erectile unpredictability or delays in orgasm that then are extremely frustrating and lead to different types of strife and tension in a couple. So I would say Absolutely. The move from sort of relational sex to procreative sex can kind of strip out a lot of the other qualities that we're used to to having in sex and introduce a sort of a, like you said, kind of a pressure and, and a goal that creates all sorts of anxieties. And anxiety is the number one enemy of sexual health and sexual function and sexual arousal. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, in our last podcast episode, we featured Samantha Bush, who's married to race car driver Kyle Bush. People look at them like they have a perfect, sexy life. And she was sharing the anecdote of when she was trying to conceive, she texted him. I think he was racing. He was really busy that day. And she said, do you need a, an invitation to my fucking vagina? Because he wasn't responding. <laughs> and she's so ashamed now of saying that we laughed about it. We've all had those moments when trying to conceive what pressure everyone feels. So she's also, as I am, a big fan of actually connecting when you're not fertile so that you can keep the sexual connection outside of that ovulation conception window for heterosexual couples so that it's not all about the goal. Because like you said, it's, it's a killer. Now, sex during infertility and fertility treatments, I believe, adds a completely other layer because now, and I know from going through so many fertility treatments, how much our bodies are jacked up on hormones. This is called pregnant-ish because when you are on fertility drugs, sometimes your body is responding to the same hormones 
that you have in the first stages of pregnancy. And it's really intense. So sex may be extra tough. Is it okay? I, I think our audience sometimes at Pregnantish feels guilt, well, for so many things. But is it okay at times to take time off from sex with your partner? When do you suggest that and when do you not suggest that? I suggest that all the time. There have been studies that have shown, because you know I wrote this book, so tell me about the last time you had sex, and it turns out that 95% of couples, heterosexual couples, uh, engage in intercourse as the primary sexual behavior. And sometimes there's only three to five minutes on average before couples are getting to intercourse. So, so much depends on this one sexual behavior. So very often in many, many different contexts, I will say, let's sort of get out of what I call the intercourse discourse and just take that off the table so that we can pressure free, like explore other things. But, you know, you're talking about something else that's a little different too, which is just this idea of like, is there a difference between eroticism and sex? Or why does sex always have to equal a sexual event? So I would absolutely say, you know, and for many couples, I think infertility issues is sort of the first challenge in the life cycle that they're really dealing with in terms of being a couple sometimes, in terms of certainly trying to conceive. And there's going to be so many challenges in the life cycle as you age that are going to require, you know, flexibility and change and optimism and hope and adaptability. So I think that it's, it's, it's kind of like, the sort of like a boot camp for almost sort of entering into the life cycle with another person. And I think it's absolutely okay to take sex off the table. But let me say this as well. What I don't necessarily think is okay, Andrea, is to lose all sense of sexiness or eroticism or what I call the erotic thread, which is sort of the, the space between sexual events that connects sexual events. I work with so many couples who have in different ways, and certainly when there are infertility issues, have lost what I call the erotic thread because because sex has become so such, a, such the elephant in the room and it, it triggers so much either pressure or a feeling of despair or frustration or um, um, tension, you know, that almost all eroticism just sort of gets extinguished, extinguished and vacated. So I think it's okay to say no to sex. It's okay to say I'm just not feeling great or, you know, these, these, these hormones are making me feel wonky today. But I would really challenge couples to hold on to eroticism and erotic connection. And what does that look like? That can look like anything. It could look like 30 seconds of just finding each other during the day and noticing what's sexy about each other or allowing yourself to pick up on a sexual cue or allowing your partner to feel sexual and just holding the space for a little while and not feeling like, oh, this is an invitation to have sex or this is pressure to have sex. I, I totally agree. And I, I covered that a lot in my, my book, Cheat on Your Husband with Your Husband, that there there are moments where we can flirt and be sexual without it being sex <laughs> and and kind of calling back our sexy selves from the past when we were dating can be a fun exercise, rereading emails that we used to send each other, stuff like that. So I, I yeah. really like that. I, you know, 
I think this is so connected as well to grief because, and I'm sure in your practice and all your experience in your work, you've dealt with people. And I, I love how you said it. This might be the first chapter in many chapters of loss and hardship and grief and challenge. And this teaches us how to stay connected, which which is a great skill to have in a long-term relationship. So I, I really like, I really agree with that, to, to stay connected, to stay erotic and sexual, even if it's not sex. People with infertility often report, and I know I did, losing confidence in themselves, their bodies, especially when they don't feel their bodies are doing the right thing. And we hear this uh, from men and women because men definitely have infertility as well. And so both sides say, you know, my body is not doing this thing that's supposed to be natural. And then they're down on their body. So I'd love any thoughts you have on how to stay connected. Not We've talked a lot about staying connected to your partner, but how do you stay connected to your own sexy self, your sensual self during tough chapters? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, just about staying sexy and staying sexually connected to yourself. I think it's you know one thing that I've noticed in in working with a lot of couples around their sex scripts and a lot of people with their sex scripts is that sometimes sex just gets reduced to a sequence of physical behaviors and it sort of becomes a little dehydrated of eroticism and creativity and imagination. So, you know, there have been studies, Andrea, that have shown that women can fantasize their way to orgasms and women can become uh, highly aroused just through psychological or mind-based stimulation. And the same thing is true of men. I actually work with a lot of men who are having performance issues, often during infertility, and they are able to get erections when they are self-pleasuring and taking in some kind of erotic material. So I think that there is sometimes a challenge to kind of just allow your erotic mind to awaken a little maybe decoupled from the body. So what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, you could go through a photo album and find like, you know, really erotic moments in your life or the, the that sexy honeymoon or that trip that you had. And you could just allow yourself to you know, relive that a little bit. You know, we're going through a renaissance right now in what I would call sort of erotic stimuli, whether it's erotic literature, erotica podcasts, you know, ethical porn that's often being created by women for women, you know, sex toys that are more thoughtful than ever. So sometimes just maybe allowing your erotic mind to percolate a little bit, maybe playing with a little bit of arousal that doesn't have to go anywhere. You know, I also talk a lot about, you know, the concept of willingness that, you know, when it comes to, to sex, and I'm sure you've thought about this too, Andrea, like you don't always show up with desire for certain things. But if you recognize that something is important, like your own sexuality or your sexuality with your partner, then you can show up with willingness. You can have the willingness to allow yourself to start to simmer and percolate some sexual cues, you know? So sometimes willingness really comes before desire. It sounds like in general, a lot of what we want to do to reawaken our sexual spark is just bring up the level of consciousness, right? Around, around this being important to us and that we are sexual beings and it's a great expression 
of our lives. It's a, it's a great part of our lives. I know that it's very easy with couples for days to turn into weeks and months and years where they're not having sex. And that can definitely happen during fertility treatments because now, especially if you're going through IVF, you actually don't need to have sex to make the baby. You That's you right. are the baby's being made in a lab. So right. <laughs> where the That's right where the pressure can happen right. in that in that case. It, yeah, and there's a lot yeah. 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 A lot of pressure in a different way and, and men have to perform on demand to get their sperm sample. And I remember I've heard this from so many women. My husband should stop complaining because I'm the one going through the hell with the hormones and the egg retrieval. All they have to do is, you know, jerk off, masturbate to porn, and they come out happy and I come out, you know, in pain. But as much as we can laugh about it and say, oh, they have the easy job, it's not an easy job to perform on demand and to produce a sperm sample for the purpose of making a baby. So IVF in general can just put such a wrench in your sex life where it's just so mechanical. I work with a lot of couples on the other side of IVF where they have, and tell me if you, you find, this might just be specific to my practice, but sex has been off the table for so long because of IVF that they're really trying to find their way back to sex, but they really let it go, you know, mm -hmm. and there have been some really interesting studies that have shown that couples who have sex once a week, it doesn't have to be with an effort to be procreative. It can just be about being relational or fun or letting, trying to escape a little bit and let go from some stress. But the couple's who have sex once a week have higher levels of relationship satisfaction than couples who don't overall relationship positivity. And it's interesting couples who have sex two, three, four, five times a week, they don't have higher levels of relationship positivity than the couples who have sex once a week, but the couples who have sex less than once a week start to really have, um, let's just call it less relationship positivity. So I think holding on to sex in some way, holding on to sexual connection, recognizing that it's fraught, there's more stressors than ever. I mean, look, there's more turn-offs than ever for both partners and in the environment, and there's fewer turn-ons, most likely. And so it's an incredibly pressured time, but I think really making that effort to hold on to sex is important and not waiting until you get on the other side of something just to, to get back to being sexual. Yes, because I think, like you said at the start, your practice, you see people when it's not too late, it's never too late to work on your relationship, but they could have called a lot sooner and before crisis hit. So the, the goal is to be conscious of all of these things. Yeah. What do you think about planning for sex? I've always felt that it's okay to plan to be spontaneous in relationships where all so busy. And it doesn't just happen all the time the way it may have in the first year or two of dating. So what, what do you think about planning these sessions? Maybe when you're not fertile. Right. So you're talking, so that's so interesting. So you're talking about planning more like uh, just the relational or the recreational as opposed to the procreative, which has already been planned or outlined or determined in some way, right? You're yes. talking about planning 
planning for all of that spontaneity that might not be happening that we associate with sex, right? Yes, because I think when that's off the table and we know it's being taken care of, as you said, it's being taken care of by your clinic in the lab. So we can just focus on the fun part of sex now. That's probably good news. You know, that that means that we have more freedom to explore and have fun and remember that we're lovers and we're partners. We're not just baby makers. And I think that's so easy to lose. It's just so easy to lose sight of. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, I have a homework assignment that I always give couples who are having some kind of desire discrepancy or desire issue or mismatch libido. And it, it comes back a little bit to that concept of willingness that I was talking about. I call it a willingness window because you're setting aside a window of time to do something that sounds like it could be a little sexy, sounds like it could be enjoyable. And you're showing up for that window because you have the willingness to do it because it's important, not because you necessarily have the desire and the interest. And you know, just so many studies and in my own clinical experience show that once couples or once an individual starts to engage with their sexuality and starts to sort of build up that arousal runway, that it really does lead to desire. So I have this exercise, it's called a willingness window. And I'll often tell couples like, don't let's not put sex in there. Let's not put intercourse in there. Let's put something in there that's just sexy and arousing. Let's lay back in bed and read some erotica aloud together or listen to an erotica podcast or let's uh, just take a, you know, a sexy shower together or let's watch some ethical porn or let's just have a makeout session. Wouldn't it be nice to just have a makeout session without the pressure to have to have intercourse or have to get all around. So the exercise is a willingness window and it's meant to be something that's scheduled, something that you'll show up for because it's important, but also something that's non-pressured and that could actually be fun. And there's so much flexibility in what can happen in that window, which is great. I think, you know, so often talking about sex, which, which can be very important exercise for couples outside of even a clinical setting or practice, but it's so hard to broach these topics. I often suggest that couples, if, if it makes you more comfortable, turn out the lights and talk about it. You know, talk about your needs if you're too vulnerable to look at each other to talk about these themes. It's really good to check in sexually is, is what's happening with you, I'm, I'm, I would love your thoughts on this, but I've often felt that couples who check in ab- about many things in their relationship to make sure things are in balance and healthy, one of those things is sex and sometimes negotiating, you know, what, what time of the day, what day of the week is better yeah. for you? Our questions, as unsexy as they are, can lead to breakthroughs. Have you seen that too in, in your work? Yeah, I have totally. In fact, what's well, interesting, Andrew, you know, you, you got me thinking about something too, which is that, you know, when couples are dealing with infertility or when they're just planning, right, you're able to talk about so many different aspects of your health and your life. But when it comes to sex, so many of us grew up in sex negative homes or sex avoidant homes where sex wasn't even talked about. Certainly most of us did not grow up in sex positive homes where we we were encouraged to have healthy conversations around our sexuality. So we really come into sex 
without the experience, without the modeling, without the mirroring. So in some ways, we're all kind of a little dysregulated around sex and not able to really talk about it. So I love your idea of just sort of turning off the lights and sort of just allowing your minds to sort of wander and not feeling like you're going to be judged or get that judgmental gaze. I also, you know, whenever couples come in, regardless of the issues that are coming up, whether they're life cycle issues, infertility, um, illness in some way, just aging, or some kind of problem that they're dealing with, a lack of arousal, pain, orgasm, erectile issues, orgasm issues, people come in focused on the problem. And I often, in the space, in the therapy session, I try to get them to really imagine the solution. And I'll really ask them, you know, if we're working together for a little while, say a few months and meeting every other week, and we're doing homework in between. And let's, let's say that sex actually gets better. Like, what does better look like? What is the sex that you would be having? And I kind of get the couple or the individual to just describe a sexy vision of their future. And you said sort of having an unsexy conversation about sex. I, I like that. I like just having a neutral conversation, but I like pushing that conversation into a sexy conversation about sex because sexy language is a form of mind-based stimulation that actually has the ability to get us a little aroused and a little interested. So sometimes couples come in worlds apart around sex because they've only been focusing on the problem. And I actually get them to really articulate sometimes for the very first time, what would actually be hot and sexy and erotic and, and I can feel the, the temperature in the room rising. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that happens. I, I, yes, I think both conversations can bring us so much. Do you find that in your, in your experience, the challenges that couples face in general through infertility in, included in this, in this case, can it build a stronger relationship or sexual bond? And if so, how do you, how do you think? I do think. I mean, I think, you know, I talk about in the book a little bit about the difference of sort of side-by-side communication versus, you know, face-to-face communication. And, you know, side-by-side communication is sort of like when things are kind of working out and we're sort of moving through the life cycle in ways that we sort of expected that we would, whether it's meeting somebody and falling in love and getting married. And I sort of say we're kind of side-by-side in that. You know, we're we're connecting and we're interacting, um, but we haven't really encountered necessarily the kind of adversity or obstacle that's going to force us to really look face to face at each other and really work with each other. And I think when couples are brought together through some kind of obstacle or some sort of adversity, something that they really um, test them and pushes them and expands their sort of comfort zone, I think it makes us stronger. I see couples all the time on the other side of, say, infidelity is something that I deal with a lot where, you know, they were sort of a little dissociated or a little disconnected and something major, something existential, something big really caused them to have to think about or contemplate the relationship and they've picked each other. 
right? They really had to pick each other. And that makes you stronger. I know that myself. I deal with things with my wife and I won't get into it here and now, but things that have really made us stronger. And, you know, you reminded me there's a Japanese tradition of pottery. I think it's called something like kintsugi. I'll find out the exact word. It's when like a vase shatters and is broken into pieces. There's a tradition of putting it back together but with an adhesive, a glue that's gold leaf, that's like this molten gold leaf. And so when you put the vase back together, you see all of the cracks in the vase, but they're filled with gold. And it's it's thought that, you know, the flaws, the breaking, because it's been filled with gold, actually makes the vase more beautiful in the end. And, and I really think that that is true. I think it's a metaphor for the adversity that we deal with in lives and in relationships and how it can make us stronger and more beautiful on the other side. And I truly believe that. That's such a beautiful message. I, I often say you can't have intimacy without vulnerability. So it, it allows us to connect so much deeper than maybe we wanted to. A lot of times during my infertility struggle, I remember thinking like for the first few years, okay, I'm learning lessons. I'm growing. I'm becoming more vulnerable. That's breaking me open. And then uh, you get to a certain point, maybe for me, it was year four or five where I was like, okay, <laughs> I've heard, I've learned my lessons. I don't need more of this. This is really hard. But well, Let me ask you something. So you went through something big like that and you were in a relationship. See, I find with couples that when you're going through that kind of adversity, often it leads to a kind of communication that can be sort of more defensive or aggressive or solutions oriented. And it's very hard to access the vulnerability. It's very hard to say, I just feel so rejected or... I feel like such a failure, like something's been neglected, whatever, or I feel scared, right? It's hard to communicate that. It's hard to get in touch with that vulnerability, but I think it's really hard to communicate to that to a partner. And often when couples, I've seen this a lot with infertility, you even gave examples of the kinds of things people say, like, what's, why is it so hard for you? I'm going through all the treatments. All you have to do is, you know, give me some sperm, right? Like when you're having that kind of communication, it's kind of hard to be vulnerable. There isn't a lot of emotional safety. Yes, that's very true. I think when we don't realize we're on the same side, we're, we're literally in this together to make, if you have a partner, I mean, we definitely have listeners who are single trying to build their families or uh, in, in non-heterosexual relationships, building their families. But all of those situations, um, you know, we, we need to be on the same side, not only as our partners if we have one, but our healthcare providers, like we are all, it, it's some, for some of us, it takes a village to create a family. Sex does not make baby for a lot of people. And these people need to find safety in the partners they have along the way. And that can be incredibly hard. And I agree with you that we so often go to a defensive place when we're vulnerable because fear anger, sadness, all of this is mixed in. But the, the more we can express our, our truth, our vulnerability, the closer it is really an opportunity for a relationship to grow and bloom. And great skills I learned with my own husband, I think it made us better parents as a team because 
we went through so much struggle to get there and so many hiccups and so many moments where I even said to him, you should leave me for a fertile woman. <laughs> you, know, you say these things that are, that are hurtful to yourself, not just the other person. But, you know, on the other side of that, you, you learn new ways to connect, communicate, and you can, you can get stronger, I believe, on the, on the other end of it when you work through it together. You're right. And there's so much shame, isn't there? I mean, so much shame around something like infertility or having a sexual issue or, you know, dysfunction and the way we internalize that shame and beat ourselves up. And it really can shut us down and cause us to sort of either withdraw or get angry at ourselves so that, you know, getting that shame out and somehow finding the safety to to let it out so that somebody can help you undo it, you know, is so important. I think that's a really great note to end on because I know a lot of people listening feel the shame, the sadness, the grief, and it's just a reminder that we can change the script. It's like you said, we can change our experience if we are willing. So thank you. Is there Where can people find you, your book? Sure. I mean, I'm always on my website, iankerner.com, and updating things. And, and the book, So Tell Me About the Last Time You Had Sex, is hopefully going to be widely available in bookstores. And so I would say come to the website. People can email me as well. If I have the time, I'll always try and respond briefly or point somebody in the right direction. So it was great talking, and I love the work that you're doing. And it's, it's so important important that anybody dealing with something like this has that feeling of connection and community that really makes a difference with any kind of adversity. Study after study has shown that that connection is the variable that gives us resilience and grit. Amazing. Thank you so much. And thank you listeners for listening to another episode of the Pregnish podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Tell your friends, your family, anyone who this podcast may benefit. We are really committed to supporting not only the infertility community, but sharing advice that I believe is universally helpful and also capturing stories that are extraordinary. Until next time.